Hello and welcome to Theta Project. This is a podcast where I speak to thinkers and doers from a variety of fields to find out how progressives can up their game. I'm Meron Kalili and I'm your host. In this episode, I speak to Asteris Masuras. He's a global news curator, something he's been doing for about 10 years now, performing a very valuable function for journalists and activists across the world. I spoke to Asteris at the beginning of December 2019. We started our conversation with a deep dive into what global news curation actually is, and then we discussed a variety of topics, from the value of Twitter as an activism platform today, when to call a fascist a fascist, and deplatforming and censorship as political weapons. I learned a lot from Asterius and gained a lot from this conversation. He's a really thoughtful guy and he's got a ton of empathy. His Twitter bio, which you can check out at, at Asterius, says, Stay human. And I think his very human take on everything really came across in our chat. If you'd like to get in touch, the email address is hello at thetaproject.co and you can find the show notes at www.thetaproject.co. Okay, let's get to it. I'm Asteris Masuras. Um, I'm an online journalist uh, and uh, occasionally activist, uh, but mostly I'm a, news, a global news curator and amplifier. That's been my metier uh, for the past uh, decade or so. Global news curator. I mean, could you take me through the process of how do you curate global news? So you're following specific sources on, on Twitter and retweeting those sources? Well, the process is, is uh, it's been evolved enough to have a name now. It's called Open, open Source Intelligence or OSINT. You're following public sources and informing up the public uh, with them by filtering and amplifying them. The main issue for that kind of work is how do you know what's happening on the ground if you've not been there? Can you take me through how, how do you verify sources? I mean, do you have some sort of a policy for making sure that what you're reading on Twitter that people are posting is totally legit? It's basically an organic process. Uh, it takes time. You could conceivably jump into a new sphere of news that you're not familiar with, uh, but you carry your own preconceptions and prejudice, as all, we all do. And it takes time to sort of listen to what's going on on the ground, preferably to have some sort of empathic connection with um, the people at large. It sounds like you, what you're saying is you sort of develop a nose for it. Yeah, you develop a nose for it, but it's also how journalists trust their sources and find people that are credible enough to carry the general uh, sense of what's going on on the ground. And at the same time, always filtering out biases First of all, you have to filter the biases from your own side. It's part of your job to be not a contrarian per se, but distrustful of authoritarian narratives, the narratives of power. And professional journalists know that. Whether they take it into account and practice it or not, they know that. Can you give some examples? What are some sort of shining lights of, of really, really good, thorough, clear journalism today? The foreign core work working in Syria, for the most part, has been excellent. Uh, the journalists who repeatedly visited uh, the conflict on the ground and became attached with the people and the, the region, they're really good journalists for the most part. A lot of them are women, which does play a part. Um, they have an activist side to their um, reporting because they feel that the conflict in Syria has been under-engaged under, um, with not necessarily underreported. There's been a swath of coverage in the first years of the conflict, but then the world, uh, the world just tuned it out, just like they did with the Iraq conflict previously. They've been 
trying their best to convey uh, what's happening on the ground to people and not necessarily advocating for a specific solution, but advocating for people to care. If I look at Twitter, for example, there's been quite a shift in Twitter in, in the last four or five years. I used to feel that it could be a platform where the kind of things that you're describing could happen, that there could be awareness, that it could help people to care more. Now I just see a lot of very angry people split into tribes and lobbing at each other and everyone's watching different movies. So from an input point of view, from an influence point of view, it seems to have changed. Do you feel the same or, or would you challenge that? I do, but also it's a lazy assumption to make. You know, I berate myself for making that assumption uh, because in the, in the heyday of Twitter, in the early days, like the first four years, say, five years, uh, which coincided with the Arab Spring and the indignant movement and all the wonderful stuff happening out around the world. You know, wonderful things still are happening. People are, are, aren't even interested in, in the main about, for instance, Lebanon. What's happening in Lebanon is a sort of continuation, not necessarily of the Arab Spring, but of the same collective spirit of positive change. And yet the same audiences uh, aren't interested. So there has been a sort of marginalization of the winds of change you know, on Twitter, but it's not, it's not, they're not out of the picture completely. I mean that the platform is ideally suited to toxicity and negativity, but the platform is part of the public commons. It's, it's one thing if you decide for yourself, I can't waste the energy to do this anymore here, but... If you, if you just capitulate to the toxicity, it, it doesn't help the public. Point well taken. Um, you just cited Lebanon and what's happened in Lebanon. I mean, before we jump into some of those issues that you just mentioned um, with regard to extremism and the public comments, I just would like to understand what for you are the, the recent examples of good work where Twitter has kind of come into its own as an activist tool and has really helped to instigate change. Well, Lebanon is, is certainly one. It's exemplary because Lebanon has a large English-speaking uh, public sphere. The Lebanese are extremely well-versed in online activism and generally representation of public uh, issues. They, ha they seem to have evolved the model of both Occupy and the Arab Spring without being explicitly a sort of iteration of, of either of these things. You know, it's a new thing. They've also iterated uh, another shining example, which was the Sudanese revolution in, a, in an even more, um, you know, fraught region of the world. How has the amplification of news from Lebanon, how, how has that shifted things for the country in, in the last couple of months? Maybe this is a um, misconception or naive, or naive. But I think the more we're sort of monitoring things and engaging, we can help protect these movements from uh, the crackdowns. The other aspect of engaging from abroad is to put pressure on our own governments to not cooperate with authoritarians and corrupt figures. I think also just being there for these people sort of validates their need not to be alone. It's not a Western thing. You could be from anywhere in the world. People want to want to feel that that cause is not indifferent to other people. It's, it's a human need. The other, the other side is what you're doing as an intermediary, that you can inject uh, a sense of the public um, you know, discussions and the evolution of, of public policy 
into your domestic audience. To try to push the focus back on the issues that matter rather than every twist and turn of impeachment process. Or... Yes, exactly. And the political process in the, in the commons, because the minute you have people starting to peacefully occupy a square, within two days, we're going to have vibrant discussions about what is a public space, what is politics, the essence of nationhood, all of these things. These things are basically natural tendencies of the human species. We sit together in the same square and start talking with each other. That's why you see so many of these uh, revolutions starting with reclaiming public space. Imagine being a Lebanese where all the, the formerly uh, public spaces are owned by private companies. It was a, a core part of, of the whole revolution movement to reclaim our spaces and to sort of not just defeat corruption, to take back what is ours. And yet, you know, that, that's the stories about Lebanon are just nowhere in the, in the media outlets that I'm reading. See, my point exactly. It's really off the radar. And this kind of brings me to the idea of impact, even though you, you wouldn't give yourself that activist label in the bulk of the work that you're doing. Still, it's, it's change that you want to see, isn't it? Of course, of course. And therefore, it kind of comes back to me to how do you know when your work is making a difference? Have you got any examples of where you could map, we did this, and thanks to that, this happened on the ground? Like the earliest examples would be, for instance, here in Thessaloniki, local bloggers, mostly, uh, stopped the municipality from um, disastrous development projects, at least two of them. And uh, we had several victories in, in the European Parliament over digital rights. But I think the biggest... Um, sort of impact was the uh, intertwining of activist journalism and the citizenry during the, uh, the indignant uh, anti-austerity movement. So that was in 2011, and we're eight and a half years on now. Why do you think there hasn't been more of a kind of systemic shift that would facilitate more impact coming from this type of work? Because that's, that's how humanity operates. It's it immediately obvious in the environmental um, side of things. You're at the point where a 16-year-old uh, um, school student is going on strikes, influencing people around the world, and even being hosted by the UN, because uh, Secretary General Gutierrez is very much on board with uh, Greta Thunberg's protest. But although the world is aware, uh, and the world is sort of espousing the, the, the viewpoints of the activists, there's no shift in, in practices. And we have seen that for, for like decades. And now we're at the brink of irreversible change to the ecosystem. I mean, the planet is fine. The people are fucked. Uh, <laughs> uh, but there is still no traction, no change. So why? It has to do with humans. Like humanity is embroiled into this day-to-day -day struggle. And it's in incapable maybe of taking larger action even to safeguard its own existence. I'm not an expert on the climate topic at all, but what I, what I see as an observer is the same issues communicated in the same alarming way and the link to the broader quality of life narrative, like traffic jams, congestion, mobility, pollution, even economic competitiveness, these kinds of things. That link is so rarely made. It always feels like something that's far away, both in terms of time and in terms of distance. I know, I know where you're coming from, and I, I, I don't necessarily disagree with you. And I'm also critical of uh, NGOs that have the whales in the room, you know. It's also a larger problem with human mentalities that has to be changed through education, and social education is what we're doing. 
brings me to the idea of deplatforming and censorship for ideas that are deemed too dangerous to be given a platform. There is a view that bad ideas should be confronted rather than censored. Where do you stand on that? Yeah, I know. I'm aware uh, and in, in touch with both schools of thought on that subject, and I have friends on both sides of the equation. It's a core issue of our time. I am a fervent believer in freedom of speech, uh, but I'm not a blind libertarian. I do realize that speech can harm. So it's hard. Uh, and what we're seeing right now on Twitter is a growing contention, and on Facebook, primarily on Facebook, but also on Twitter, a uh, growing contention between um, people who use speech primarily to, to harm, and they claim uh, speech rights, and people who are uh, routinely deplatformed because of um, you know, reporting uh, campaigns by the first group. And that's unsettling. So it's a very fine line and a fine balance, and it's a case-by-case -case thing, or what? I mean, is there any kind of first principles that you could fall back on in order to be able to, to discern what should be deplatformed and what should be let through? First of all, they need to change their, their uh, architecture and mentality, the, the platforms, I mean. I see it as inevitable that we will have uh, hate speech laws in some sense, even though I'm, I'm extremely uh, cautious about their uh, propagation, because I see um, a pattern of litigating uh, authoritarianism even in Western uh, uh, societies. Like, for instance, in Greece, the blasphemy laws, you know? Yeah. It's ridiculous. Why would Greece have blasphemy laws? And they have been used in a political, uh, as political uh, weapons against dissent. If I look, for example, at the, I think it was last year when Steve Bannon was invited to the New Yorker Festival. Yeah, good example. They invited him. There was an outcry. They disinvited him. And for me, that was like the worst of all possible outcomes because it gave his crowd the oxygen of being invited. And then they gave them the right to cry. He was deplatformed. They're trying to censor his ideas. What was your take on that specific incident? There's a, there's a fine line between uh, examining and challenging extremist ideals and um, amplifying it. There's a fine line, and several institutions have crossed it. True, but I think the, the New Yorker Festival, had he been there, I think they would have sat him down with David Remnick, the, the editor of the New Yorker, who presumably would have challenged his ideas before a, a crowd of people agreeing with, <laughs> with David Remnick. Um, okay, but at least they would have been on camera, and you could understand the, the light and the shadow in the guy's ideas. Isn't there a value to that in, in holding these things up and saying, okay, what does this person believe? Because however we look at it, and I know this doesn't apply to, to everybody who's been deplatformed. I know there are some people who are just toxic and, and ranting. And again, that's a, perhaps a difficult call to make. But Steve Bannon is a hugely influential figure. He's responsible for the situation that we're in today. And for me... Yeah, Steve I, Bannon I, is the, the Rasputin of the, the entire um, extremosphere, far-right extremosphere. Right. So if I'm approaching this from progressive side, I'm thinking, I want to know what are his talking points? What are the holes in his arguments? Where are these people coming from? And also, what is he actually doing? Because, for example, you know, he's running this, um, the movement. It's a collaboration between all the right-wing authoritarian governments and, and wannabe governments in Europe. And he's part of this. He's facilitating this network. He's very quiet about that. I want to understand what he's up to. 
you want a frost sort of interrogating him. Yes, I don't want to give him a microphone and hear a speech. I want a debate where his ideas are being held up and criticized. And I want to hear how he reacts. So you, you, you basically disagree with protesters in Oxford when he, went, when he was invited. Uh, that's what he's doing. He's basically uh, insinuating himself into high-profile um, platforms and gaining new audiences because he's being legitimized. Uh, there was a wave of normalizing uh, basically fascists, okay? Let's call them fascists. I do, at least. Uh, the alt-right. There was a wave of legitimizing the, uh, and normalizing the alt-right like a year or so before uh, Trump came into office, at least before the, 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 the hate wave in uh, American streets, you know. Then you had Charlottesville, and all of these uh, extremist attacks on places of worship. Before all of that happened, there was this trend uh, by mainstream outlets, including New York Times, to uh, normalize the, the Nazi next door. This, I don't know how you view this, but I view it as complicity. I'm very hesitant, actually, to use that term, fascist. Um, and it's not because I don't like calling a spade a spade. It's because I'm aware that, like, I'm aware of how it makes people feel when they're labeled deplorables, racist, etc., and how it rallies them around something that maybe they were not believing that firmly in. But now that those guys in the establishment media, those elite Ivy Leaguers are calling us this, now I'm going to vote for Trump. Now I'm going to go for the, to that rally. Now I'm going to wear we that. Made, we made them gel together, you mean? I'm not saying that, but it, it facilitates it. It facilitates oh, it. Oh, if you don't oppose it, it will happen anyway. I mean, how well, does it facilitate? This was from the On The Media podcast. The most powerful identities are the ones whose status is being threatened, insulted, disparaged, anything like that. So what you're doing in this time of, of identities and tribes, <clears throat> what we're doing, by drawing this line around people and saying, well, okay, you're a racist, you're a fascist, is actually we're just solidifying that group. And that's human nature. We are hardwired. We can't avoid that. No, look, I, I, I agree that um, using simplified vernacular uh, doesn't help. Uh, and it's also part of the journalism profession to distinguish. I insisted, like uh, on my own uh, outlet, I insisted that if some grouping was demonstrably uh, espousing a set of values, that they would be called with that sort of name. You know, for instance, the, the Golden Dawn group. The Golden the Dawn group is Nazi. Like, it walks like a Nazi, it talks like a Nazi, and it beats people up like a Nazi, you know? It doesn't matter if they deny it, they're a Nazi group. I'm not saying that all the groups in that sort of ecosphere are Nazi. Some of them are white supremacists, some of them are nationalists, some of them are ultra-nationalists, but, like, at the very least, most of these groups are white supremacists. And that by itself means uh, an existential hatred of other races. Right, but take Golden Dawn, okay, what you just mentioned. The majority of the support that these people have is just from everyday people. Everyday people who are confused, are uneducated perhaps, and weak, feeling loss of dignity, all these kinds of things. I'm not sympathizing with their choice to support Golden Dawn. No, I understand, but, but they're good Germans, nevertheless. But the problem is that when we say Golden Dawn supporters are fascist or Golden Dawn are neo-Nazi, are we only talking about the people that are bashing immigrants and wrecking market stalls? Yeah, okay. There's a room for distinction there. I'm not saying necessarily that all of the sympathizers are Nazis, but you know how, how they're being uh, put on trial for being a criminal organization? Yeah. 
Yeah. They're not like put in trial for criminal um, acts uh, by specific people. It's an organization. It's, there's, there is something called a criminal organization in which being a part of means that at the very least you're being an accomplice to criminal acts by others. So it doesn't necessarily mean that I, will, I would like to see everyone who theoretically or vocally supported them or voted for them Voting is an especially touchy subject. I don't want to see anyone, you know, persecuted for what they voted, okay? Okay. Um, but, and there's a but here, if these people, their supporters, are actually engaging in the sort of public activities that are helping them commit crimes against other people, you know, the vulnerable for the most part, then they're complicit. But then would they warrant the label Nazi or fascist in your mind? My view is that the core group and the people who participated in the pogroms are Nazis and they know it. Like they believe in the cultist militant uh, fantasy of the Nazi party. Now, everyone else outside the central group uh, can fall into shades of the spectrum. But to the extent that they're helping them attack uh, vulnerable populations, it's problematic. Would you agree? Absolutely. And I think it's a, it's a good distinction. At a personal level, I would agree with you in terms of how to label the, the core of that group. But for, for the purpose of the debate and for the purpose of activism, these are generally kind of unhelpful terms because they're always used as a negative. When I hear labels like, like fascist, but also populist, for example, in, oh mainst my God. in mainstream discourse, mean anything. <laughs> exactly. I mean, populist it's basically what, what the establishment calls you when it, it doesn't like what you're saying. So how is it useful? I mean, there's this guy, Cass Mudd. I don't know if you've read his work. I know, I know of him. and you know. Seems to write the same article all the time and just changes the words. It's all about how this is populist and that government is populist and that person is populist. It's so meaningless. It's not good for the debate. And I'm not legitimizing the actions of any of the people that they are labeling populist. I'm just saying, let's retire the term because no one's, no one's going to think a populist is ever a, a good thing. Here is where, where I disagree with everyone. I disagree with uh, the, um, the strict centrist liberals like Mud, uh, Mud, how you call him, you know, uh, on using the term populist. I disagree with the leftists and the anarchists in the generalized use of the term fascists because it's it sort of as you say it engages people negatively and makes them own up the label like for instance the villages that march to the refugee um, uh, relocation uh, camps you know around greece this last month were they all fascists i don't know i'm just saying that they are racist obviously to my mind you know racism is is inherent in every in every human to some extent, you have to fight it all the time. Nobody is non-racist. Everyone is like has a sort of racist tendency in, in, the, in themselves because racism basically uh, springs from the need to classify things easily so you can uh, reflexively react. It's an animistic impulse, racism. If you start uh, get, getting to know people for who they are, you can't treat them anymore as part of a generic group that you despise or suspect. You treat them as, as human beings, individuals. So in order for us not to be racist, we would have to be on a first name basis with every human on earth. <laughs> so that's my sort of idea. So you just, you just push back racism in, in your own self all the time, assuming that you want to. But I, I wouldn't, and I don't like, as you don't, um, 
uh, to characterize all these people protesting the refugee uh, relocations as fascists. I wouldn't do that, you know, and I don't do that. Particularly reserving this term for people who have a political platform, you know, to exploit these people. I think you take a lot more care than the average person, and I think it's very, it's very good because words are all we have, especially online. Yeah, I often hear people, you know, being characterized as as racist because they supported Brexit. Same thing with Trump voters. And look at what happened with Hillary when she made that comment about the deplorables. So the left, they always score a spectacular own goal when they're loose with these kinds of words and labeling the opposite side. Yeah, it's true. It's true, but it's not just the left. If you look at the far right spectrum, they're, use, they're doing the same thing with, with their own uh, nomenclature, like social justice warriors and all that stuff, you know. And I see that vernacular everywhere. But I agree that it's more frequent that you'll hear people calling other people racists than you, you'll hear them, you know, calling them social justice warriors. They are actually sort of winning the narrative of being the oppressed public speech uh, side right now. They're gaining ground by presenting themselves as being sidelined by the dominant progressive uh, narrative, which is, of course, not true because you see it, the, uh, the impact on politics, right? <laughs> like politics are conservative. Right, but that's also why progressives need to be extraordinarily careful with deplatforming as a weapon. Because that, as we talked about before, often just gives the other group something to rally more support around them. Well, that brings me to something, something else, which is a more recent thing, and, and maybe we can close with this. But you'll recall, I think, yesterday, this NATO summit where Justin Trudeau and uh, Emmanuel Macron were caught on a hot mic, um, basically bitching about Donald Trump. Yeah, and even Boris Johnson was laughing, don't forget. And Boris Johnson was laughing as well. And, and I, I just saw before we, we started speaking that Joe Biden, the Joe Biden campaign has now turned this into a, into a video. But this for me, it sort of exemplifies a, a problem that I'm seeing on social media, which is that that hot mic incident, okay, that's, that's shared by lots of people on my timeline with this ridicule. Look at this, how ridiculous. Or perhaps with the idea that, oh, they, they don't take him seriously. How can we get rid of this ridiculous orange creature? This kind of thing. The other side, because I, I delved into some of the comments from people from the right, they see this and they think, good, this is the sort of person that we want to shake up these stuffy meetings in NATO. And you know what? These cowards, they can't even complain to his face about him. So I see these two different movies that are being played. And it's so frustrating because there's no common ground on which these two sides could come together and discuss this video and have their views changed in any way. Okay, that's been a problem for me as well. And I think that uh, in order for politics to be closer to people, it has to do away with all the artifice on some level. That's one thing. And the way uh, the Trump campaign is weaponizing this is like trying to make it appear as if Trump is the only honest person in the room, which is not the case. But things like that video could still solidify more support for Trump. Yeah, I understand. But you can't do anything about it. There's always going to be a, an intent, a method to weaponize these things in favor of the autocrat. Well, yes, and also I would criticize the leftists on my timeline for sharing it. Firstly, they're ridiculing it. So you have the problem of, well, when they ridicule it, that actually makes the other group feel you know, more cohesive and stronger. But second, the fact that they're sharing it and amplifying it, 
without packaging it in a way that could neutralize it in terms of... But how do you do that? That's, that's the thing. Trump has successfully deludes the, the public sphere with, with, with uh, the, this stupidity um, you know, effect to the point that stupid is now the new normal and you can't even react to it. I understand what you're saying and I, I agree to some extent, but on the other hand, how do you basically defang it? One of the proposed approaches to this, and I'm not saying it's necessarily the best way, but I think you know George Lakoff, the uh, linguist. I've heard of him. Yeah, I haven't read his stuff. I mean, this relates to fact-checking. Trump, which was a big thing for the election and continues to be a big thing. And, and his argument, as many people say also, is that by checking the facts, you're amplifying the lie. So what he proposes doing is something called a truth sandwich, where basically you tell the truth. So the, the truth first, you know, you're, the actual, the truth that you believe. Then you point out what the lie is and how that lie diverges from the truth. And then you repeat the truth and tell the consequences of the difference between the truth and the lie. Yeah, but that's a technique. I mean, uh, the, you know De uh, Daniel Dale? Yes. He works for the Washington Post. Yes, yes but he's, he's only pointing out the gap. That's yes, the problem. But that's the, a technique. I mean, what, what Daniel Dale is doing is, is a service to everyone, every other journalist not having the time to do that stuff on their own, you know? You're right. You're right. You're right. And, and he's providing fantastic raw data, I think, for, for, for that. But... In terms of communication and the type of communication that doesn't help Trump advance his own agenda, it needs more than that. It needs to take that kind of content from someone like Daniel Dale and package it, package it in a way which the other side cannot use. I don't think that's doable. I mean, I, it's, it's impossible to uh, inoculate your message from being repackaged, you know, because it's in the nature of, of a message. I mean, you've seen that in Oppo campaigns in politics, right? Everything you say can and will be used against you by the other side, right? What you're proposing is basically tactics of uh, reusing, you know, the core uh, elements to better, to better um, get audiences to understand them. But I think that you have to start with the audiences. Audiences tend to tune out whatever is not in their immediate interest. They tend to act as tribes, you know, like coalesce around uh, authority figures. You have to go door to door, uh, you know, mouth to ear. I mean, talk to your own people. Like, we have overlooked this, right? In, on Facebook, you, you see this the debate, uh, which is not even a debate. People are just throwing arguments and characterizations at each other. They're not talking to each other. I completely agree. And, and, and work needs to be done at all levels of the, you know, the, of the stack, if you like. But this is something which could be implemented, for example. I'm not saying it's the best way. I'm just saying it's, it's one way that I've, that I've read about, which hasn't gained any traction. And he's been saying this for a couple of years. He's railing against the fact that Trump is able to manipulate the media largely because of this dynamic. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm so inspired by the work that's being done by public movements when they're out of the state, commonly called the revolutions nowadays. You know, they're not revolutions in the way that people knew them in the past. They're not like killing people or anything. They're just revolutions against the, um, the normative politics, which are basically corrosive, you know. So that it's mostly about getting people on the street and across each other and talking to each other. I've seen that work, like um, in the indignant protests. It was amazing, you know, like people uh, sat across each other and listened to each other from different uh, polit political, um, um, you know, regiments. 
and in 2011 yeah 13 and 11 and all that time and it worked and it's still working now in lebanon and in sudan and i mean that's why i believe on the streets you know uh in egypt one of the things that made an impression on me was the young revolutionaries which were obviously you know for the most part uh internet savvy and westernized and they went to their folks at home and explain to them why Mubarak had to go. <laughs> and I'm yeah. not being a Luddite now. You know me, right? I spend all my time on Twitter. First, you have to have people coexist in the square. Like, this is amazing in Lebanon. You know what their, their main um, um, slogan is? All means all. All of them must fall. You know, the entire system. And I, I can't even be, uh, begin to grasp how they managed to put together an anti-sectarian political movement because that's what it is you know there are people from all sects uh, of politics coexisting and being revolutionaries first in the current uh, timeline that's amazing how did this happen in the street you know and if it sustains itself oh yeah that's that's a main that's a main issue how do you scale and how do you sustain but it's a worthwhile political project and even if you don't change uh that's that's what also i've been hearing from the lebanese that at least you, you can coexist with your people for a time and have a new understanding of how you can talk to each other. Yes, and, and also the networking element, which I found incredibly beneficial in, t- in 2011. Oh, yeah. The fact that you meet people off, I mean, you know, like, you know, I met you, I met lots of other people. And after all the observers and after they went home and stayed home, those people endured and they stayed i mean you're still you're still you're still friends you know you might be um friends in an idle way that you don't talk to each other but you're still sort of a family of citizens from across political um right yeah imagine that happening in a country entire you know in the world that's that, that's the ideal how do we escalate uh, the potential of this kind of coexistence and engagement and communication and participation and, it, you know, you're right. As, as long as we, we keep obsessing about political figures, I mean, that's what I'm saying to my mother. You know, my mother comes from a, another age. And she's like, we need politicians. No, I'm saying, like, we need people, you know. Like, you can't expect a strongman to come and fix these things for you. The body politic, the citizens will fix it. Well, that's a, that's a nice note to come to a close. I, I wondered if you could recommend two or three books related to the kinds of topics that we're discussing. You're going to laugh at one of them is about the open source movement. <laughs> fine, fine. Bring it's it open on. sources to all. It's a series of essays about the practices uh, and mentalities behind the open source movement and how it germinated across uh, the technology sphere. You know, it doesn't go into politics per se, but it's interesting. Open sources Dan Gilmore's uh, first book about citizen journalists uh, was also very formative in the sense that I was. I was aware of uh, what he was describing, you know, because I was doing it, but I hadn't exactly realized how it ties to the need of local communities to be informed. Is that we the media? Yeah, we the media. Yeah, exactly. And like, I don't have a third book, but I, there's tons of science fiction dealing with uh, those issues. Exactly. I mean, science fiction was my was my political playground, you know. Um, Starting with Orso Legends, uh, who, whose entire work is focused on, on uh, politics within the community, activism, and all that stuff. But that's been really great. Thanks a lot. I've really expanded my mind talking to you. And um, great. Thanks for your time. Thank you for the opportunity. That was an episode of Theta Project, and I was speaking to Asteris Masuras. 
If you'd like to get in touch, the email address is hello at theatreproject.co and the show notes are available at www.theatreproject.co. See you next time. Thank you.